Thank you, Lord, for bringing us just what we need this morning. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Well, I come up today with uh, quite a tangled mess of, of things to, whoa, it's going to go well, sort out with you. So we're on a series called Knowing Jesus Through the Old Testament. We're trying to know him through the Old Testament law. It's very hard because there's so many ideas that uh, we don't understand in the Old Testament law. Particularly this week, I want to talk about the weird stuff. The food laws and the animal sacrifices. Are we going to be able to find Jesus in this stuff? Did you know the Old Testament has a list of foods that if you are a part of the people of God, you cannot eat them? Some of them, I don't know why they needed a law to stop them. Like uh, you're not allowed to eat bats, vultures, and weasels. How hillbilly you got to be to need a law to keep you from eating bats, vultures, and weasels. All right, sorry if you grew up among hill people. Not really, that's disgusting. That's, that's gross, bats, really. All right, some of the animals on the list, I don't even know what they are. So you're not allowed to eat cormorant. Okay, uh, gleed or glade, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, a lapwing, that sounds like one of my Star Wars toys. Um, Ossifrage, don't know what that is, don't think I want to eat it. Some of the things on this food list, though, I'm not sure I could live without. For instance, you're not allowed to eat pork if you're the people of God in the Old Testament. Now, I can't live without Gates Barbecue. I got to have some Gates Barbecue, right? How may I help you? Sausage on bun, please. I can't live without that in my life. Then there's the Old Testament animal sacrifices for sin and for thanksgiving to God. They would slit the throat and then burn the bodies of bulls, rams, doves, and of course, sheep and lambs. Now, the next thing that's tangled up, in addition to those laws being strange, is that uh, we have evidence in the New Testament of Jesus uh, not following, uh, I think it actually goes here for now, not following those laws. Listen to this passage from uh, Mark chapter 7. Then Jesus called to the crowd, come and hear. Uh, All of you listen, he said, and try to understand it's not what goes into your body that defiles you. You're defiled by what comes from your heart. Then Jesus went into the house to get away from the crowd, and his disciples asked him what he meant by that parable he just used. Don't you understand either, he asked? Can't you see that the food you put into your body cannot defile you? Food doesn't go into your heart, but only passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. Ooh, thanks, Jesus. Uh, That's what it says in the scripture. By saying this, he declared that every type of food is acceptable in the eyes of God. Okay, that's fine. I can go there that maybe the Old Testament is just weird, old, and wrong, and Jesus is coming to fix it. I could do that, except, tangled up in here, is uh, there's these parts where Jesus says that he is... uh, not coming to break the laws and not coming to take them away. We've read this every week since we've been studying the Old Testament law, but let's hear it again. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. 
But then it gets even more tangled when Jesus didn't come to take away the Old Testament law, but about five minutes after his resurrection, the church stops practicing the food laws and the animal sacrifices. We don't avoid pork here. In fact, we're having pork barbecue next Sunday after church for a celebration. I'm going to announce it at the end. And as far as I know, we have not celebrated, uh, or sorry, yeah, we have not celebrated anything by sacrificing a sheep here at Lakeland or any other church that I know of for the last 2,000 years. Yet, finally tangled up in all of this is that there's places in Scripture where it says all Scripture is inspired by God. Really? Even the parts that contradict itself? Even the parts where the Old Testament law and New Testament practices differ? It all comes from God? Okay. Is there a detangler that we can spray on this thing to sort this all out? There is. There is. There is an understanding that we can come to that will detangle this mess and actually we've already been reading it we we started reading this as soon as we started this series we've read it every sunday and some of you caught it on the first day and good for you here it is it was in matthew chapter 5 where he said don't misunderstand why i have come i did not come to abolish the law of moses or the writings of the prophets no i came to accomplish their purpose I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So these laws aren't going to disappear until whatever their purpose is, is fulfilled. So we might be able to untangle the strangeness of these Old Testament laws and the phenomenon where Jesus breaks them if we could understand their purpose and why they're there. So let's try to find the purpose. Let's start with the food laws. Now the food laws have confused Christians for centuries, and I think particularly this last century with the advent of modern science, because uh, we're making this too hard. If you go on the internet today and search food laws, you're going to find all sorts of speculation that the reason for these food laws in the Old Testament was health reasons. You know, like you can't eat pigs because they have this weird parasite. And you can't eat shrimp because they're too high in cholesterol. You're going to find this sort of stuff, uh, all different ones. But that interpretation really doesn't hold a lot of water because... Jesus in Mark chapter 7 declares all foods are clean. And Peter in Acts chapter 10 sees a vision in which God tells him all foods are clean. And this is all way before refrigeration. So why would God care about the cholesterol of Jews and not Christians? And let's be honest here. Are grasshoppers really that much safer to eat than shrimp? Because grasshoppers are on the clean list. Do, 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 Pigs really have that many more parasites than catfish. Uh, Well, actually, catfish are unclean, too, because of their scales. Let's pick any fish. As a biologist, let me tell you, no. No, fish are filled with parasites. Cook them really, really well. It doesn't make sense, that interpretation. The real answer has got to be something easier than that, and and this this is that answer. But these food laws were made to create a separate people of God. 
Okay, follow me on these next few turns. Complicated diets separate people. Do you have friends who are on a complicated diet? Are you on a complicated diet? Isn't it hard to have them over to eat with you? Isn't it hard for you to eat outside your own house because your needs or their needs are so precise, so unique? Some are vegetarian, some are vegan, some are low-carb, some are no-carb, some are gluten-free, some are peanut-free, some are doing paleo, some are eating nothing but fruit. Uh, you know, they're going to be in the bathroom a lot. Uh, some don't eat anything spicy, some eat nothing but dairy, or don't eat dairy. Uh, who knows why... You know, why don't we just stay home and watch some Netflix? Because it's just too hard to have these people over, or it's too hard for us to eat outside this house. Precise diets separate people and make it difficult. It makes you stop and think every time, where are you going? Who are you going to be with? When it's time to eat, what are you going to eat? It makes you think this way two or three times a day. The Jews in the Old Testament had a precise diet. And every time they sat down at the table, they had to remember, okay, we're not exactly like these people. They can eat this and we can't eat this. The food laws were made not just to symbolize, but to ritualize, ritualize into their everyday life that they're to be a separate people who don't mix with other cultures and don't mix with their gods. Now, I know right at this point, some of you are thinking, that sounds really far-fetched. That sounds a little bit kind of fruity and strange. But I'm going to be able to prove that interpretation right now. We will be able to prove this interpretation using the New Testament. We will be using Acts chapter 10. So let's go to that night in the book of Acts where Peter uh, has a dream. A sheet comes down from heaven. On it is pictured all sorts of uh, unclean animals. And the voice of the Lord says, Peter kill and eat this stuff. Peter says, no way, I don't eat unclean animals. I'm a, I, do, I do it right. And God says, don't call stuff unclean that I call clean. Okay. What does Peter do next? Whatever Peter does next will tell you what the meaning of that food law was. Whatever Peter does next will tell you what first century Jews thought that law was for. If that law was given for health reasons, then Peter will wake up the next morning. He will make some fried ham and he'll say, I've been waiting for this stuff. It always smelled so good when the Gentile kids were eating it and he'll be healthy. But if it was for the reason of creating a separate people of God, then Peter will wake up the next morning and he will go and sit down and have a meal with someone who's not a Jew. Now, what I didn't tell you is the night before Peter had this dream, a Greek man asked Peter to come over for dinner and tell him about Jesus. And Peter started sweating because he's like, well, he wants to know about Jesus, but he's Greek and I can't eat with him. Then he has this dream. God says, don't call anything unclean that I've called clean. And then the next morning, Acts chapter 10, verse 28, he goes to the Greek man's house. Peter told them, you know it's against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to associate with you. But God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone, anyone, he said, as impure or unclean. Peter understood immediately upon waking up the meaning of the food laws and that if the food laws mean the people, or the food is clean, that immediately he knows that it means that the people are clean. God wants to have fellowship with all of these people now that Christ Jesus has come. So the meaning of the law is to create a separate people of God, 
but somehow no longer are food laws needed to achieve that. Now, what changed? What happened all of a sudden? It was important to have a separate people of God. Food laws created it. Now, all of a sudden, food laws aren't needed to keep it. What changed? Let me explain that in a long analogy. Got a couple more turns to try to follow me on. So when you meet a teenager, and that teenager says to you, you know, last year I was in a lot of trouble, but that wasn't who I was, and that wasn't who I wanted to be. So I stopped hanging out with that group of friends, and I made some new friends, and it's taken some time. And now I'm better. What do we say to that teenager? We say, what a great choice you made. How wise you were to understand that and how brave you were to step out by yourself into a different community. You did well. When we meet someone who's in their early 20s, they just come to Christ, they say, you know, I used to be a partier. I used to go out with the guys after work every Friday. We'd get drunk. Something regrettable would usually happen. But then I became a follower of Jesus, and now I'm out of all that. I have a wife. I have a kid. I still see the guys. We hang out some, but I don't go out with them on Friday night. I'm just not there anymore. What do we say to that guy? We say, um, good for you. You know, that's, that's what happens when you mature. I hope your friends will mature into that stage of life with you at some point. But then we meet the 40-year-old Christian pastor. And the 40-year-old Christian pastor says, I never set foot inside a bar because people get drunk there. And and this isn't true, but I'm just making an analogy. Uh, And I don't hang out with my own brother-in-law because he works at a payday loan company. And payday loan companies exploit the poor and they exploit American soldiers. And I can't condone that sort of activity. So when he comes to Thanksgiving, uh, I don't even go. What do we say to the 40-year-old pastor? We say, you're stuck up. Holier than thou prig with the G, the British word. You stuck up holier than thou prig. Who made you so righteous? Don't you know that Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners? Now, why do we give a different reaction to the middle-aged, long-time Christian versus the 20-year-old new Christian or versus the teenager? What changed? In a word, maturity. We know that teenagers have a hard time not conforming to the morals around them. They need a time to live separately to become a people of God. We know that folks who are new to their faith in that stage of life where you're starting community, starting a job, starting life on your own, they often need a time of separation, sometimes alone, sometimes in a new group of people. In your 20s, you need a time apart from all that temptation to form who you are, to let the concrete set that you're a man or woman of God. But we also know all that time that's going on that God wants to save those friends from school and those friends from work who got left behind. They're children of God too. They're not the enemy. There ought to be mature folk in the body of Christ who can reach them. And once your identity in Christ is firmly established, you can go back and minister to them. When you have better friends here than you ever had there, then you can go back in measured doses and the support of the church behind you and minister to them. And you have better friends here who are watching to see that you're not getting reeled back into what you used to be. Remember that Israel 
was once new to God. Uh, read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. First, this goes on for a while. First Samuel, Second Samuel, First Kings, Second Kings. They, they were new to God at one point. They were very confused religiously. Look, look at Exodus. And, and Exodus is a great example because literally on one page, they can dance naked in front of an idol of a golden calf. And on the next page, celebrate the Lord's Passover. They were so confused religiously, they could bounce between gods on a coin flip in a single afternoon. They needed a time to learn what it was to be the people of God and who this God is. And the food laws created the separation they needed to do that. But their mission, the whole time before all that happened, their mission stated in Genesis three times, we studied it, was always to wind up a light to the whole world. But somewhere in the pages of the Old Testament, they lost their mission. They got the idea that everyone who wasn't a Jew was their enemy and God's enemy. So God sent them the prophets to tell them, no, no, that's, that's not what's going on here. Read the prophet Jonah. We'll take you 20 minutes and you'll see the story of a Jewish prophet who did not want to reach people who weren't Jews. Read the prophet Hosea, just the first two chapters, and you'll see the point of, look at all these nations you hate. Well, you're no better than them. Read the prophet Isaiah. That will take you a few hours, but see how often Isaiah says, this mission is going to go out to the whole world through my servant. The whole world will be saved. But they didn't get it. They didn't get it. In fact, they killed all the prophets. So Jesus then comes. God comes himself to be with us and to set us straight and to say, this permanent permanent cultural separation you've created, that has been outdated for 500 years. You are not teenagers anymore. That's the meaning of the law and why Jesus says all animals are clean, why God sends Peter a dream to say all food is clean. Now let's talk about those animal sacrifices, switching to the other law. So if you're trying to follow us on the handout, you've noticed a minute ago we flipped over to the backside and you know there's a big table on the backside. Oh my gosh, there's a backside. We're on the animal sacrifices. So when they would go into the temple, especially once a year, and they would lay their hands on the head of an innocent lamb, then the priest would kill that lamb. And that was a word picture, and this is what it said. It said, your sin causes death. Look, you touched this lamb. Symbolically, your sin entered that lamb, and guess what happened? The lamb died. Behold. But you have come here seeking forgiveness. This is the Feast of Atonement. So you're going to walk out of here alive. You're going to walk out of here alive and know that you are forgiven. And we'll see you next year at the Festival of Atonement, also called Yom Kippur. So why did the animal sacrifices stop? And of course, the answer is because now the symbol has been replaced by reality. Sin symbolically caused the death of the lambs in the temple, but sin actually caused the death of God's Son on the cross. What more picture will we ever need of how bad human sin is than the death of God's Son committed by us? What more picture do we need of how bad our sin can get? But what more picture of forgiveness do we need than his resurrection? And on Easter morning, when he comes out of the tomb and says, now you guys are going to get it. 
No, he didn't say that. That's the point. He came out of the tomb and he said, I forgive you. Now come follow me. Hebrews uh, in the New Testament, chapter 10, says it so beautifully. It says the Old Testament, and this scripture I'm going to read is going to fill in about three lines across that chart. The Old Testament system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped, for the worshipers would have been purified once for all time, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sin year after year, for it's not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's why when Christ came into the world, he said to God, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings, but you have given me a body to offer. Verse 10, for God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once. For all time. Now we know the meaning of the laws. We can see why Jesus isn't following them. But we still got a tangled mess here. Because uh, Jesus says. Sorry. Jesus says uh, that he's not breaking the laws. Well we've got we've we've to figure out that one. Because he says he's not breaking the laws, and then after his resurrection, uh, all those laws go away. See if we can untangle this. Let's start with the food laws. When Jesus in Mark chapter 7 declares that the food laws are ended, he's not saying, get rid of those food laws. What What a mistake those things were. They're evil, and we never needed this. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, now the time has come to reach all nations. The Holy Spirit is available to all, as has been the plan since Genesis, the first book of the Bible. So sit down at their table, eat what they're eating, and tell them the good news. But remember, always remember to live as a people of God. You can adopt their diet, but don't adopt their morals and don't adopt their gods. And you have the Holy Spirit to help you do this. Your stomach can have lobster now. Amen. But your heart must remain undefiled. That always belongs to God. Because remember, it is accomplished. And the animal sacrifices. When the church stopped sacrificing animals, in no way did they say, stop with the animal sacrifices. Those are wrong. They sent a bad message. It's actually quite the opposite. The preaching that sin causes death, but God forgives sin, got even stronger with the picture of Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. So even though the food laws and the animal sacrifice laws are no longer with us, their meaning lives on in Jesus. And it turns out this is what has caused this to be a tangled mess the whole time. We thought they went away, so I'm going to change one of them. Actually, what happened is they live on in Jesus. 
This is the key to untangling the whole thing. Now we see that the Old Testament law had a purpose, and when that purpose is accomplished, Jesus stops following the law as it was written. But he says he didn't come to take it away. He came to accomplish its purpose. And now that purpose lives on in Jesus. And then we can say now that all scripture is indeed inspired by God. It's beautifully stated in uh, Timothy chapter, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. All scripture is inspired by God and it's useful to teach us what is true and make us realize what's wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. I think now this also explains why we don't treat the Old Testament law all the same. Some parts of it are radically altered in the modern church, and some parts of it are still practiced exactly as they were. It's because their purpose is still being accomplished in that same form. Let's give a few examples. This is going to explain why so much of the Old Testament law was practiced by Jesus and is still important to modern Christianity, just as we've been saying for the last three weeks. Because its purpose is still being accomplished. Take tithing, for instance, the giving of 10%. The purpose of tithing was for us to trust in God to provide for us and rely on Him, to make sure there's a provision to care for the poor among us, and to make sure that those who give their life professionally to the spiritual care of the community have a place to live and food to eat. We still need all three of those things. And so Jesus once told the Pharisees, you should tithe, yes. But remember to have a charitable heart towards people all the time, too. Don't just tithe as a heartless religious act. And in their case, forget some parts of it, like the care for the poor. This is why the Old Testament rules for sexuality are all still practiced in the church. Those laws were created to remind us who we are as beings, that we were created for faithfulness. We were not created for adultery and premarital sex. We were created male and female to bring each other something in a complementary fashion that we don't have alone, emotionally and physically. We may not like God's laws on sexuality, but he is the creator who knows what he has created and how it works. And the coming of Jesus did not undo who we are as humans. And it did not undo human bodies. In fact, it exalted them. Every other religion on earth says your human body doesn't matter. But Jesus came in a body. Jesus was resurrected in a body. And we look forward to the resurrection. We say it at the creed. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. So the New Testament talks about things like adultery, homosexuality, in the same negative tone that the Old Testament did. Now, I know when we start delving into LGBTQ issues, it gets spicy, right? Very difficult. Some of us are engaging with that in a very deep and emotional and personal way. So this is not something you can summarize in a paragraph. So I have said that we want to set aside four evenings to really deal with these issues together in a smaller format than this. It's a little more interactive. Uh, LGBTQ in the Bible. 
uh, the church, our culture, our own families. So I had said we were going to do that in the fall, and then I had an emergency surgery in the summer that I was not expecting, and it, it, it took all the planning time for that away. So we're going to postpone that and try that uh, in the early part of next year. I apologize for that. I hope somehow God's timing is in all of that. But we will, we will come around and talk about that Old Testament law in the modern church. Other parts of the Old Testament law provide for the care of poor, the aliens, and the foreigners. The Old Testament law is filled with protections for people like this, and those are never going to go away. In fact, Jesus just ensured that the gospel is now going to go out to all nations. So he just heightened the Old Testament's insistence that we learn to care for those who are different than us. It says someday you won't even make distinctions between Greek and Jew and barbarian and Scythian, male and female, slave and free. So today, we not only got to know Jesus through the Old Testament, but we got to know the Old Testament through Jesus. We said this would happen when we started this series, that someday these two would become like two flashlights shining at each other. And then that's what happened today. The Old Testament showed us the mission that Jesus comes to fulfill, the purpose that he comes to accomplish. But Jesus shined a light back and helped us remember and understand the original reason for those Old Testament laws. And it's call to us to be a light to the world. 